The following lesson is provided by Biblical Training. The speaker is Dr. Bill Mounts. More information is available at www.biblicaltraining.org. Father, we thank you for the work that you do that I cannot do, that Sunday school programs cannot do, that outreach really can't do. Father, we thank you that you are at work in the lives of individuals. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are convicting them of their sin. You are drawing them to yourself. You are making them into new creatures. You are putting your stamp on them. Thank you, Father, that every day we live, we live in your presence as your spirit guides us. As your spirit empowers us. Father, the enemy is strong. He's mad. He doesn't want our lives to change. He doesn't want anyone else's life to change. And Father, we confess that we cannot defeat him. So all that we can do is praise you. That in the proclamation of the gospel and through the power of your might, he has fallen. We pray, Father, that his head will stay down. And not, my, not by my strength, not by my power, but by the strength of your spirit. He will be defeated in my life and in my family and in this church and in this town. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the past, we've talked about the fact that Christians are monotheists, that we believe in one God. And therefore, Jesus can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. But we are also Trinitarians. We believe in three persons of the Godhead, as we say it. We believe that God the Father is fully God and distinct from God the Son. We believe that God the Son is fully God and yet distinct from the Father. And the same is true of the third person of the Godhead. We believe that God the Holy Spirit is fully God and yet distinct from God the Father and God the Son. And so we understand verses like that in the Great Commission, where we are told to go make disciples, baptizing people in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're monotheists and we're tritheists. And we admit this is a mystery. We believe it because the Bible teaches it. And we're not really surprised because we don't expect to fully understand the character and the nature of God. What I would like to do today is focus our attention on the third member of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and look specifically at two of his primary tasks, two of the things that he is responsible for. And those are the tasks of regeneration and the task of indwelling. First of all, regeneration. Regeneration is defined as that process by which God gives us new life. 
Regeneration is what happens when I was given a new birth. When you and I were made into a new creation, a conversion. And it is this process of specifically making a non-believer into a believer. Of making a child of Satan into a child of God. That specific process of giving life is called regeneration. And that's the function of the Holy Spirit. And this process for many of us began a long time before our conversion. Because the process begins with the conviction of our sin. In John chapter 16, Jesus is getting ready to die and then to leave his disciples. And he's giving them some last minute instructions. In in John 16, starting at verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now the world here is of non-believers. And so the function of the Holy Spirit is to come in the midst of non-believers and convict them of their sin, show them that they're sinners... It is to show them God's righteousness. And then it is to proclaim to them God's coming judgment on them because they are sinners and not righteous. Do you remember when you first became aware that there was something wrong? That there was something missing in your heart? That there was an emptiness and no matter what you tried to fill it with, it never filled Do you remember that time in your spiritual journey? Well, that was the work of the Holy Spirit. Coming into your life and beginning the conviction process of your sin and of God's righteousness. But then in the midst of that conviction, the Holy Spirit starts to draw people to God. Jesus tells his disciples in John 6, 44, that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. And this is the function of the Holy Spirit where in the midst of showing you your sin, he starts telling you there is forgiveness. There is hope. There is righteousness available. And it's the drawing process of God's Holy Spirit of drawing you to the Father. Do you remember that first time in your life that the thought went through your mind that maybe this Jesus stuff might be right? That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to God. But then the Holy Spirit not only convicts the world of sin, not only draws people to God, but he is the actual agent of regeneration. It is his responsibility in conversion, to make you who were dead now alive. It's the Holy Spirit's blessed job to give us new birth and new life and turn us into new creatures. Remember the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, that unless someone is born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That unless someone has the cleansing and the regeneration of the Spirit in their life, 
unless they're changed because of the power of God, they will never enter the kingdom of God. They never will become one of my disciples. See, that's the functioning of the Holy Spirit. Paul says the same thing in writing to his friend Titus. In chapter 3, starting at verse 4, he describes salvation in these terms. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God, in this case, God the Father, saved us. How? He did it by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then he adds in verse 6, Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is one of the most important Trinitarian passages in all of the Bible. Because you see all three members of the Godhead at work. That it was God's decision to save. That it was God the Son's work to make it available and he did it on the cross. And then it is God the Spirit's task to take the work of Christ on the cross and apply it in individual lives. As he renews us and he regenerates us. As he washes us clean from our sin. And as he fills us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what I mean when I say the Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. It is He who takes the forgiveness that's available on the cross and makes it available and applies it to you and to me. But He doesn't stop there. Once the Holy Spirit regenerates us, He seals us. That's a great imagery of sealing. What happens when you seal a document? Put a little wax on it and stick your ring in it. Well, you're doing two things, aren't you? You are, first of all, putting God's mark of ownership on it. And part of the Holy Spirit's function is when you and I became disciples of Jesus Christ, he sealed us. He put God's stamp of ownership on me and on you. And then the other thing that a seal does is protect the document. It keeps it safe. And so also the Holy Spirit seals us, and then he protects us. This is what Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, starting at verse 13, Paul writes, In him, meaning in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit comes, he regenerates us, he seals us, he puts God's name on our forehead and etches it on our hands so we, are, we know we are his. And then he protects us. Because we have an inheritance. As Peter says, the inheritance is waiting for us in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we will receive that inheritance. I think there's a pretty powerful word picture in modern Greek. The word that is used for the seal here, arabon, has changed its meaning in modern Greek. It now refers to the engagement ring. And if the imagery is going to have full force, so you have to go back to the times of Christ where the engagement was the legally binding ceremony. If, if you were going to break an engagement, you had to be divorced. It's not like today. And the Holy Spirit is, in that sense, our engagement ring. He is the guarantee that the wedding is going to happen and that we are going to be the bride of Christ 
And we will all, men and women, marry Christ, as it were, in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that that's going to happen. So he regenerates us, and then he seals us. Well, where would we be without the Holy Spirit? Well, we'd be dead in our sin. We'd be unable to respond to God. And we'd be guaranteed of only one thing, and that's hell. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit not only regenerates us, secondly, he indwells us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, again, Jesus' final words to his friends. John 14, starting at verse 16, he says this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, it's good that I'm going to go away. Because God will send another helper. Just like I have helped you, so also another helper is going to come. But one of the big differences is that he'll never leave you. He will be with you forever. The word helper translates a very awkward Greek word. If your translations don't say helper, it's no surprise. Sometimes we bring the word directly into English and we call the Holy Spirit our paraclete. It literally means someone who comes alongside. And the idea is that the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside us in order to help us. So paraclete is translated as helper, sometimes as comforter, sometimes as advocate. But what Jesus is saying is it's good that I'm going because then the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's with you in your midst, i.e. in me, Jesus but he is going to become in you as well. And that promise was fulfilled just a few weeks later at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came in all his fullness and all the wonder and indwelt all Christians. And the coming of the Holy Spirit for you and for me happens when you and I become a Christian. That God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, comes and takes up permanent residence in your heart and in mine. The Holy Spirit is not some divine, impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is God. And he's personally involved with you and me every day of our life, helping us. And there's many ways that he helps us. It's interesting just to get a concordance and to find the references to the Spirit and read through them or to pick up a theology and look at it. But he helps us daily in so many ways. He assures us that we are children of God. He's this inner witness inside my head that says, Yes, Bill, you are a child of God. The Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers, Romans 8. This isn't some charismatic gift. It's a promise to all believers that when the, when the hurts and the pains and the anguish and all the things that you want to express to God are so deep that words can't do it, that the Holy Spirit who knows my heart takes my heart and transmits it to God and says, this is what Bill is asking for. This is what Bill wants to praise you for. He helps us in our prayers. He guarantees our final resurrection. There's a long list of things that the Holy Spirit does. 
But there's two things that on a daily basis I think are most important. Daily, the Holy Spirit guides us. Every single day, the Holy Spirit is there to guide you and to guide me. The Bible talks about being led by the Spirit or walking in the Spirit. For example, in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the guidance, in the direction that the, the Spirit is giving. And I think the Holy Spirit, at least two ways, guides us. Certainly, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit guides us through the Bible. And this is the functioning of the Holy Spirit that as we're reading it, He's at work in our hearts helping us to understand it, helping us to apply it, perhaps pointing out a blind spot in our life that we don't realize. And we read it in the text and the Spirit says, yes, that verse was written for you. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy some rather complicated theology. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, think over what I'm telling you and the Lord will give you understanding of it. This is the functioning of the Holy Spirit to help the text come alive and to help us understand it. But I think that the Holy Spirit also guides us another way. I think the Holy Spirit guides us by being that voice in our head who keeps pointing out things to us. Now we have to be very careful because the Holy Spirit will never guide us in a way that is contrary to Scripture. I don't know how many discussions I've had, especially when I was teaching in college, of people who wanted to know the will of God. Is this what God wants? And, and they're saying, but you know, I really feel that this is what God wants me to do. I said, yeah, but it's contrary to what he said. And the Holy Spirit will never, ever lead you in a way that is contrary to what the Scripture says. That's one of the checks and balances. And yet even with the warnings of that, I think the Holy Spirit does work. And he is whispering. And he's guiding. And he's directing. And he's prompting, do that. Don't do that. Say this. Don't say that. That's the guidance of the Spirit. And this is a process, isn't it? It's a process of learning to hear the voice of God, learning to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in our heads. But as the years go by, and as you and I grow in our Christian walk and in our maturity, one of the things that happens is that we start to hear the voice of God with more clarity. About a year ago, I started praying that God would give his spirit an accent. I said, God, could you give him like a nice North Carolinian drawl? <laughs> because I got so many voices in my head that sometimes I'm not sure which one's the spirit. Sometimes it's the voice, it's just me. Sometimes the voices I hear are baggage from past bad experiences. Sometimes the voices I hear are the power of sin still work in my body. Sometimes the voices I hear are tradition. Because I said... I don't want to confuse those with the voice of your spirit. And it's been interesting over this year to start to hear the accent. It's not North Carolinian, I'm sorry. <laughs> and for me, it's kind of a quiet, it's just there. And I can usually identify the Holy Spirit speaking to me because he's normally saying, shut up. 
don't do that. Don't say that. Keep your mouth shut. So it's, I, I'm hearing that part of the Spirit's voice. But I think that's something that we all need to be doing. It's saying, God, I know the Holy Spirit is in me, and he's guiding me. He's guiding me through Scripture. But I need to hear his voice when he speaks, when he prods, and when he prompts. Help me hear that voice. Help me to develop the spiritual disciplines necessary to hear. Let me have times of silence. Give me times of meditation where I can, I can, the rest of the world is gone and I'm filling my mind with you and your spirit and your word. Help me to hear what your spirit is saying. That certainly is one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit guides us. And that's one of his daily activities. But not only does he daily guide us, but the Holy Spirit daily empowers us. And by empowering, I mean that he gives us the ability, the strength, not only to hear the voice, but also to do what he's calling us to do. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Phillips translates it something like that God is at work in you, giving you the desire and then the ability to accomplish that desire. That God is at work in you and me, and he's saying you need to grow in your walk. You need to stop doing this. You need to work on this area of your personality. I mean, those desires don't come from my flesh. My flesh is very happy, thank you, in it's sin. And I can't muster up all these good ideas on my own. That's the Spirit saying, Bill, I want you working in this area of your life. My will for your life is sanctification, 1 Thessalonians. I want you to grow. I want you to look like my son. I say, okay, God. I can't do it. And he says, good first step. I can. And the Spirit comes in and then enables you and me to do those very desires that he has placed in our hearts to do. I have four things I want to say about this whole issue of empowerment. They're not necessarily connected, but they're just four different things that came out of my study this week. One is that one of the ways in which God empowers us is through the giving of spiritual gifts. If you're a new Christian, you may be unaware of this, but when you became a Christian and the Holy Spirit came to reside in you, he brought with him at least one supernatural gift that is now your possession. And that supernatural gift may parallel your natural abilities. It may be something that's totally different from what you were doing before. And the Bible gives us, in various places, the list of some of these gifts. They're gifts of teaching, gifts of preaching, of evangelization, of pastoring. He gives gifts of administrating. My very, very favorite gift for someone else to have. <laughs> I'm not an administrator. Gifts of serving, gifts of encouraging. Gifts of giving financially. 
the supernatural gift to make a lot of money. But then even deeper than that, to have this deep God-given sense of stewardship that you have been given God's wealth to advance not your purposes, but God's purposes. And so you give. It's the gift of giving. He gives gifts of leading the church, of mercy, of wisdom, of healing, and of miracles. These and probably many more gifts are the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings. And he brings this variety of gifts because there's a variety of needs in the body. And God's way of dealing with the needs of the body is not to appoint one or two people who stand up front and do all the work of the church. God's way of dealing with the needs of the body is to gift everyone in the body so that every one of us with supernatural giftedness is able to find out what we can do and to locate the needs in the church and then to take the time to pursue those needs and to meet those needs. That's God's way of caring for the body. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that we have been given the spiritual gifts for the common good, the good of the whole, the good of the church. In Peter, he talks about using gifts to serve one another. I am not up here with my gift to make me feel good about myself. I am here to meet a need in the body. You likewise, we're in the same boat. I just happen to be standing up here. You're in exactly the same boat that I am. And we've all been given a variety of gifts to meet the variety of needs in this church. That's one of the ways in which God empowers us. Secondly, what's the purpose of all this? What's the purpose for God's guidance? What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit's empowerment in our lives? That's really easy. The Holy Spirit is there to empower us so that we will change. The Holy Spirit resides within us so that from day to day and week to week and month to month and year to year, we will grow from one degree of glory to the next, Paul tells the Corinthians. That we will begin to more and more look like Jesus. In Romans 8, 29, he says that the whole purpose is so that you and I be conformed to the image of his Son. And in 1 John 3, he says that we will look like him when we get to heaven because we will see him face to face. That's the, that's the purpose of the Spirit's empowering so that your and my life will change and we will become more like Jesus. Another way to state it is that the goal of our changed life is that you and I exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. You may have heard that phrase before. Jesus tells his disciples, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And fruit simply stands for the visible results of the Holy Spirit changing your life. The primary passage on spiritual fruits is in the book of Galatians chapter 5. And he starts in verse 16 and he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the guidance of the Spirit. Walk by the power that the Spirit gives you. And if you do that, then you're not going to be satisfying your natural urges and desires. 
What Paul does, he sets up a contrast between what our flesh wants and what our spirit wants. Verse 19, he says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the, those are the fruits of the earth. Those are the fruits of our nature, unregenerate nature. But then Paul continues, but the fruit of the Spirit, the visible manifestation that the Spirit is changing your life looks like this. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Those fruits of the flesh are gone. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If the Spirit has given us new life, then our lives should show it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. See, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and changing us. That change is supposed to affect us and it's to be visible. And where there was no love, there will be love. And where there was nothing but anxiousness, there will then become peace. Where there was anger and bitterness, there will now be love and joy. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And I know you, you look at that and you go, that's too hard. I can't do that. I can't love that person. And the answer is you're right. You can't. That's why God gives you and me the power to love the unlovely. And that includes you, by the way. And me. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit's guidance and empowerment so that we show the visible results of the change in our life. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit will not empower us. The Holy Spirit will not produce fruit in our lives without our cooperation. Now, we do not cooperate with God in our salvation. He saves us. But when it comes to issues of sanctification and growth and holiness, then we must cooperate with the Spirit. We can fight the Spirit if we want to, can't we? We can hear His guidance. We can feel the strength to do what He's calling us to do. And we can say, nope, not going to do it. The Bible calls that quenching the Spirit, grieving the Spirit. The Bible talks about that a person can outrage the Spirit of grace. How do you do that kind of stuff? Well, you do it by hearing, but not listening. You do it by being prompted to obey, but disobeying. And if we quench the Spirit, if we really tick Him off, He will not force us to grow in our spiritual journey. He just won't force us. 
But rather what he will do is that he'll start to remove the blessings of God from our life. And the Holy Spirit will start to exert corrective discipline on our lives. It's interesting. There were a lot of the people in the Corinthian church that had gotten very sick. Some of them had even died. And Paul writes to them, God did this to you because you have defiled the Lord's Supper. You grieved him. You made him mad. And the Holy Spirit has been exerting his corrective discipline on you. And some he has made sick. And others he just said, enough's enough, I'm taking you home. And he killed them. Just like he killed Ananias and Sapphira. How much better to hear and listen. How much better to be prompted and obey. Because God will not produce the fruits of the Spirit in our lives if we fight him. Fourthly, and this is just at a very practical level. What does it look like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, I know what it looks like when I put my head down, I put my nose to the grindstone, and I just make it happen. How is that different from allowing the Holy Spirit to strengthen me and to empower me to do the things that he has called me to do? What's the difference there? Well, that's a very, very difficult question to answer, isn't it? It's difficult partly because it's a mystical thing. And yet when it happens, you know it, doesn't it? When sometimes you'll you look at your life and you go, my goodness, I don't, I don't hate that person anymore. How did I do that? I stopped gossiping. Man, I used to just open my mouth and out it flowed. I don't do that. How did I do that? See, when God's power is made real in our lives and we look back at it, it's, it's very clear that it wasn't us who did it. It's very clear that it was God's spirit. But how does that work? And the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> I think, though, that part of the answer, and it's only part of the answer, is that allowing God's power to flow through us and to do the work that he has called us to do begins by me saying, I can't do it. I think that's the key. That when God has, by his guidance, said, I want you to work in this area of your life. I want this to change. I want you to finally talk to your neighbor. And you go, I can't do it. God says, good. Got you right where you need to be. I think the secret for allowing the power of the Holy Spirit is to say, I can't do it, and then following it quickly by this statement of faith, but God, you can. I mean, you see this all over the Psalms when the psalmists say, oh God, you are my rock. You are what holds me fast. Protect me from my enemies. I can't do anything about it. Only you can do it. It's a statement that I can't, but God can. And there's something in that admission and something in that confession that frees the Holy Spirit up to start empowering you and me to do what God has called us to do. Zechariah in chapter 4 verse 6 is talking about the tasks that God has given him. And Zechariah says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
My prayer, and I've shared this with you before, my prayer every Sunday before I stand up here is that, God, I can't do anything about these people. I can't say a single thing, and I believe it. I can't say a single thing that is going to change your life. Nothing. But I believe that as I'm faithful to the gospel, God's spirit can change you. And he can change me. It's what happens when you're talking to a non-Christian friend and the spirit says, now's the time. I've prepared them for the gospel. They're suffering greatly. They need to hear there's hope. And you go, I can't. He says, that's right, you can't. But I believe, God, that you can't give me the strength and the words. And the Spirit says, I can. Good job. Now say it. It's in the admission that I can't and in the confession of faith that God can, that God's Spirit is freed to do the work that he so desperately wants to do. I think that's part of the answer of what it looks like to let the Spirit empower and enable us. Now, this is not an excuse for laziness. I still have to study for my sermon. You still have to read your Bible. You grow in your faith. You become salt and light. I mean, Romans 12, 1 and 2 are powerful verses that I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, these are things that you do as the Spirit gives you guidance, and as the Spirit gives you enablement, you say, today I will present everything I am as a sacrifice to God by the power that God's Spirit gives me to do so. Today I will not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but I will be transformed, I will be salt and light, not because I'm a strong workaholic, but because the power of the living God courses through every cell in my body, and it is he who will enable me. He is he who will give me the words and the strength to say them. That's the enablement, and that's the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Boy, where would we be without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, it would never look like Jesus. We would never change. But thanks be to the inexpressible gift of God's Spirit to you and to me, the blessings of the Spirit. In John chapter 7, Jesus is at a festival in Jerusalem, and he cries out, John 7, starting at verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. And then he goes on to say that river is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. Let's not have the Holy Spirit trickle. Let's not have the Holy Spirit trickle in our lives. Let's not have the Holy Spirit trickle through our lives to our neighbors and friends. May the Holy Spirit flood my soul. May it drown my sin. And may it come gushing out of me. May it flood this church. May Holy Spirit flood my family. May he flood Spokane. 
May he be that river of living water there to change and transform our lives so that we look like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, there are times certainly in which we quench your spirit. Where we take hold of that tap and we turn it off. So the Holy Spirit has very little effect in our lives. We have this silly idea that once he's regenerated us that I can live any way I want and that's not true. Father, may you put the desire in every one of our hearts to open the tap. Father, may by your enablement, your spirit flood our souls. May it wash all the impurities out of our lives. And may it flood through our mouth and through our hands. Oh, Father, may rivers of living water come out from me. And out from these, my brothers and sisters, may this church, may Spokane never be the same because of the work of your spirit in our lives and in our midst. That is our prayer, Father. And it's a prayer that's there because your spirit has placed it there. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this lesson brought to you by biblicaltraining.org. Feel free to make copies of this lecture to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.biblicaltraining.org. There you will find the finest in evangelical teaching for use in the home and the church, and it is absolutely free. Our curriculum includes classes for new believers, lay education classes, and seminary-level classes taught by some of the finest seminary teachers drawn from a wide range of evangelical traditions. Our mailing address is Post Office Box 28428, Spokane, Washington, 99228, USA.